Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at SalemAlliance.org. Ron Walborn is uh, our guest speaker today. Uh, Ron is, uh, he is the dean of Alliance Theological Seminary. We, uh, our movement, the Christian Missionary Alliance, has uh, universities around uh, this nation and a seminary, and Ron is the dean of that seminary, and also the dean of the undergraduate program that I always mess up the name for. Uh, but it's in Rockland, New York, as well as in Nyack, New York, as well as in Puerto Rico. Um, and uh, Ron and I serve on the board of directors for our denomination, and uh, you, you know the president, John Stumbo, who was a, a previous uh, uh, lead pastor here at Sam Alliance, and so we try and stay out of trouble. We're fairly most, su- most meetings, yeah, fairly successful at that. But beyond the dean stuff and all that, I'm just I'm just grateful that this guy is a friend, uh, and we we've loved doing uh, life together. And um, and he and his wife are here to to bless us and minister to us, and that we work with our staff as well. Uh, but would you give them a great Sam Alliance welcome as Ron opens the to us today? Well, it's good to be with you, Salem Alliance. I've known about you for a long, long time, uh, but this is my first visit here. Uh, Your former pastor, um, Don Bubna, uh, worked with us at Alliance Theological Seminary, developing our field education, and so there's a connection there, and then, of course, a connection with John Stumbo, who once in a while has to yell at Steve and I to keep us in line, you know, in board meetings. And then uh, I saw Steve Dengarin over here. Steve, how did our hair get gray? Uh, I was Steve's ordination mentor, so if you're not convinced he's, you know, qualified, it's my fault, Um, you know, do you remember that? Yeah, so uh, lots of connections, and uh, Juan and I are thrilled to be here. Um, I got to celebrate uh, with my wife. She received her doctorate yesterday from Western Seminary, so... So it's really cool. We're now a paradox, so... You'll get that over lunch, okay? (laughs) All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can have fun in your presence. But uh, the joy that we feel uh, is often followed by your spirit coming and doing a work of transformation. And we're okay with that because we know that there's no greater joy than to say yes to your ruling presence, Holy Spirit. So we welcome you in this place today. We invite you to do anything you need to do in us that you might do everything you want to do through us. And we anticipate your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Juan and I have been married 31 years this summer. And yeah, you can, that's good. I, I, was, at a, uh, I was doing a big Korean conference and I, I announced that I'd been married 30 years and they all started to yell. And I went 10 years to the first wife, seven years to the second. <laughs> Yeah, and I went, just kidding, you know, and they were all shocked. Um, but yeah, 31 years, and in 31 years, I've learned a few lessons to stay married, and one of those lessons is I have to choose my battles wisely. Uh, men, if you've been married longer than 10 minutes, you know that uh, if you get into an argument with your wife, sometimes, even if you win, you lose badly. You know, one guy, that was wise for you not to say amen. Uh, I heard one guy say amen, and all of a sudden, ow, as his wife elbowed him, you know, he just lost. Uh, so this, this, this issue of, of fighting the right battles, it's really important. 
It's also important when you have teenagers. Now, uh, Juan and I have four uh, kids, and they were all teenagers at the same time. There they are. Don't they look well-behaved? No. No, they were, they were a little crazy, a little wild. They, Wanda says they may look like her, but they act like me. And, um, and in their teen years, I had to really come to the conclusion that there were times that I had to not focus on the battle for behavior. I had to focus on the battle for the heart. Now, please understand, you have to train up a child in the way they should go. I understand that. But there came a point where if I stayed focused on the battle for behavior, if Wanda and I were focused on the external, we were going to lose their heart. And if we lost their heart, we were going to lose both battles. And so uh, as I thought about that, I also thought about the fact that the church and Christians fight the wrong battles sometimes. I think there's times that we are so concerned with behavior and externals that God is up in heaven saying, what battle are you fighting? Why are you wasting your time, your energy on money at fighting a battle that I never called you to fight? You see, you and I, we've been called to fight for the hearts of men and women. And sometimes I wonder if we've lost sight of the right battle. So today I want us to look at a passage of scripture found in John chapter eight. It's a passage you're familiar with. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery and in this passage, uh, I think we can learn some lessons from Jesus as to how to choose our battles wisely. And then when we get into the right battle, how do we win the battle for a person's heart? Look with me at this passage and then I'll uh, dive into it. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, pause there for a minute. Um, ladies, you're probably asking a question immediately. If she was caught in the act of adultery, what's the question on your mind? Where's the man? That's right. And, and the truth is, the law of Moses commanded that both people be brought for judgment in such a case. But that's the thing about people that are fighting the battle for the external. The people who are focused on behavior always apply the law selectively to whom they decide to apply it. And so in this case, they're bringing this woman, they're shaming her, they're manipulating the situation, and the text tells us it's because they're trying to trick Jesus to find a basis for accusing him. But notice what Jesus does. Instead of diving into their battle, he stoops down and begins to write on the ground. Now, I don't know if you ever noticed that before, but I've always wondered, what was he writing? And, uh, and one scholar, I did a little research, suggests that maybe he was writing out the Ten Commandments. Uh, another scholar, and I like this idea, says, no, he was writing out the secret sins of the accusers. <laughs> Imagine that, you're standing there with a stone, and all of a sudden your dirt begins to appear in the dirt. And, uh, <laughs> and if you're anything like me, I'm, I'm dropping the stone and running, okay? And so Jesus stoops down and he writes, but we don't know. The truth is we don't know what he was writing. Um, but what we do know is this. He is taking his time and he's not jumping into the argument too quickly. Now, the truth is, how many times have you and I spoken too quickly when we get into this kind of a situation? And so Jesus, he bends down, he is writing on the ground, and the text suggests that it wasn't just a momentary pause uh, because they were frustrating. It says, when they kept on questioning him. In other words, he is taking his good old time, and I'll tell you why. 
I think he is listening and discerning what's going on in this situation. He's discerning what's going on with this woman, what's going on with these men who have the stones in their hand, and he is certainly listening to his father in heaven, saying, Father, how do I fight the right battle here, and how do I get to the heart and stay away from just the external? And you know what, sure enough, he comes up with a question that pierces everyone's hearts. He says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, that's one of those things that I only think about 30 minutes after the argument is over, okay? But Jesus, because he waits and he listens and he discerns the right thing to say, says it, and when it happens, he stoops down and writes on the ground again, and at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Uh, what an amazing passage. What an amazing passage because here's Jesus coming up with a word of wisdom, with something perceptive and insightful that cuts through the hearts of the accusers, cuts to the heart of this woman who has been exposed and shamed, and freedom begins to come to people around him in this passage. It's an incredible moment. You see, it's important to understand the ministry of Jesus as contrasted with the Pharisees because the Pharisees were not about the heart, they were about appearance. You see, they thought that the battle was for behavior, and, and so they, they wanted things neat and tidy and orderly and everyone well-behaved. But you know what's sad about that? Because Jesus said, even if you do succeed in making a convert this way, that person is twice the child of hell that they were before. Now, folks, can I suggest that there may be churches in this nation who are so focused on behavior and, and externals that if Jesus were to show up at their church, they'd say, you know what? Even when you succeed in making a convert, that person is twice the child of hell that they were before. Because the truth is that the gospel is not about behavior modification. The gospel is about heart transformation. And Jesus understood that if you win the battle for the heart, behavior follows. Now, listen, it's not as neat. It's not as clean. It's not as tidy. Things are a lot messier when you're, when you're in the battle for a heart. Because your last priority is not behavior, is not appearance, it's making sure you get to the real issues. And that is something I think we forget in the church a lot. Now I said that the church has a long history of fighting the wrong battles, but I don't wanna pick on us yet. We'll get to us. But let me pick on the disciples. Let me give you three examples from the disciples of how they fought the wrong battles. The first are James and John. Remember, James and John were the sons of thunder, and one of the reasons they're named that is because they were with Jesus on his way through Samaria one time when a little village, a little town, did not receive Jesus the way they thought he should have been received. And so James and John, they go to Jesus and they say, all right, we know the right battle. Call down fire on this town. Call down fire, wipe them out, destroy them. That's the right battle. And Jesus is shaking his head. Um, he slaps his forehead. He says, oy vey. Uh, it's not in the text, but he was Jewish, you know. And, uh, and, and he looks at him and he says, no, that's the wrong battle. I'm not here to call down fire. I'm here to bring mercy. And what he is instructing them is how to fight the right battle. Well, they don't get it yet. In the garden, when Jesus is being betrayed, the temple guard shows up and, and Peter pulls out his sword. And he begins to attack, and he attacks not the temple guard, but he attacks a 12-year-old servant boy that came with the temple guard and cuts his ear off. 
Okay? Not only does he attack the 12-year-old, but he does not inflict a mortal wound. He cuts his ear off. Okay? And Jesus picks the kid's ear up and heals it. And as he's doing that, I think he's looking at Peter, shaking his head, saying, Peter, put your sword away. That is not the right battle. And I can just imagine Peter sheepishly putting his sword away and scurrying off. Folks, listen. We've got to learn to fight the right battles. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, this is post-resurrection. Jesus is now appearing to his disciples. You'd think they would get it. But in Acts chapter 1, uh, they say, Jesus, is it now time to set up your kingdom? And again, they're not thinking the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. They're thinking political kingdom, earthly kingdom, overthrow the Romans, and we will rule and reign with Jesus on earth. And Jesus in Acts chapter 1 says to his disciples, listen, don't do a thing. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Because if you try to do this on your own, you're going to fight the wrong battle over and over again. And so, folks, we've got to learn to fight the right battle. Let me tell you a true story, and then we'll jump back into the text and draw some application from this. I want to tell you a story about a swearing golfer. Where's our golfers? Here. Okay. Aren't you guys glad there's not a microphone on the golf course? All right. Um, all right. I was golfing a few years ago with my, my pastor, and uh, with another Bible prof from Nyack, and we were getting ready to tee off, and the starter came to us and said, hey, would you guys mind if we put this young man with you to make your threesome a foursome? It'll save time. And we said, sure, no problem. So we introduced ourselves to this young guy. His name was Mike, and we started golfing. Now, we quickly learned uh, a couple things about Mike. First of all, uh, he was the most gifted, creative, swearer, cursor that I've ever met. I mean, he, he was so... Uh, you know, creative and insightful in the way he put his swear words together. You know, I was taking notes on my scorecard. You know, it was, I mean, at first it was kind of interesting. The second thing we discovered about him, though, is that he had a golf game to match his bad language. He was a terrible golfer. Uh, and so he was seeing more of the course than anybody else that played that day, you know, in the woods and behind the bushes and all over the place. So this cursing, this swearing is continuing. And Finally, it starts to get a little bit old. About the fourth or fifth hole, I'm thinking, man, he's ruining our day. So I have seen Christians fight the battle for behavior in moments like that, where they say things like, excuse me, but that's the name of the Lord, my God, you're taking in vain. And, you know, while there might be a time for a healthy rebuke, the truth is you almost never win the battle for the heart that way. So I started to pray, Lord, how do I address this? What do I say? So we're on the fifth tee. He's getting ready to tee off, and I get an idea. And I said, hey, Mike, um, ha have you considered that you're praying the wrong prayer? <laughs> and he looks back at me, he goes, what the bleepity bleep are you talking about? I don't bleepity bleep believe in God. Why would I bleepity bleep pray? I don't know. I said, well, you're praying and it's working for you. He said, what? What are you talking about? I said, well, every time you say, God damn it, he does. <laughs> The ball goes into the woods, into the water, behind the bushes. He goes, that's a prayer? I go, yep, and it's working. <laughs> he goes, look, I don't know anything about God. Uh, what should I pray? I said, why don't you try God bless it? He said, would that work? I said, it can't hurt. You stink. <laughs> he shook his head and agreed. So he stands over the ball. He's on the tee. He looks down at the ball. He looks back at me. And here's what he prays. He goes, God bless it? It was more of a question than a prayer. And he looks back at me and I give him a thumbs up. Okay? <laughs> when he turns to hit that ball, I start praying. <laughs> oh God, we need a miracle. You know? 
I am binding, I'm loosening, I'm binding the spirit of bad golf in Jesus' name. I'm just, I mean, I'm praying every prayer, I know how to pray. And he swings and he hits the ball and it goes right straight down the center of the fairway. Longest drive of the day, perfectly positioned for his second shot. And he turns and looks at me, he's white as a ghost. <laughs> and he's shaking. And he turns and he goes, you're in touch with the supernatural. And in my best John Wayne voice, I went, yes, I am. <laughs> now, folks, here's where the real miracle happened. The real miracle was he looked at us and he said, are you guys Christians? We said, yeah. He goes, you know what? I got some Christian friends and I have tons of questions about God. But every time I ask them questions about God, they tell me what a lousy sinner I am and how I'm on my way to hell. And, and I know that. I know, there's no secret there. But would you guys mind, would you answer some questions for me? And for the next 12, 13 holes, this kid opens up his heart to us. And I don't think he ever swore again. Folks, that wasn't the point. The point was words were a reflection of a heart that was broken and hungry for God. And over the next 12, 13 holes, we just kind of fed him what God gave us. And we got to the 18th hole. I, I wish I could say he sunk a birdie putt, fell on his face, and received Jesus as his Savior. You know, that would be a really good story. Uh, but it's a good story anyhow, because when we went to shake hands with him, he pushed our hands away and hugged us. Men don't hug, ladies. Men don't hug on the golf course, okay? He hugs us. He has tears in his eyes, and he goes, thank you. I learned more about God today than I have the rest of my life. Folks, listen, successful evangelism is not just getting someone to sign a card or pray a prayer. It's getting them one step closer to Jesus. And the only way we're going to do that is find ways to get beneath their language, their behavior, the surface, and win their hearts. So how do we do that? Well, let me suggest three things that Jesus does in this passage that I think can be instructional for us. And I've already mentioned the first one. If we're gonna win the battle for the heart, we've gotta listen before we lecture. We've gotta to learn to listen. Jesus bends down, he writes in the dirt, he is doing this double listening. He's listening to what's going on with this woman, uh, with the accusers, certainly listening to his Father in heaven. And I believe that we've made mistakes with people in our lives that need us to listen, and instead we have lectured and given them a sermon. In fact, the reality is sometimes we are preaching sermons that they're not asking questions about. And because we fail to listen, we miss an opportunity to win their heart. In terms of my kids, I gotta be honest, some of the worst mistakes I've ever made as a parent have come because I lectured before I listened. Uh, let me give you one example. I have my daughter's permission to share this story. But when my daughter Kelly, she's my oldest, when she was a freshman in college, she was at another Christian college not far from us. She had a scholarship because I was a dean at this other Christian college and we had a relationship. And so she's in her freshman year and it's in the middle of her freshman year in the winter and I get a call from the dean of students of this other school. And the dean of students says, Ron, uh, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but your daughter Kelly uh, was at a party she shouldn't have been at at another school and we found out about it and it was drinking there. And uh, she knows the rules, and she wasn't doing anything too bad, but the truth is she has to be on disciplinary probation for this next semester. Now, I gotta tell you, I was angry. I was furious. I was embarrassed. I was not concerned with my daughter's spiritual and emotional development at that point. 
I was just ticked. And so I called her, and when she answered the phone, I let her have it. And I mean, I just yelled, and I was just, and again, it was coming out of hurt, it was coming out of my own anger, and I went on and on and on. I probably sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, wah, 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 wah. And finally, after 10 minutes, she said, Dad, will you please listen? I said, no, I'm not done, and I kept going. Another five minutes. Finally, she said, Dad, please listen. I said, okay, what? She said, the dean's right. I know I shouldn't have been there. And as soon as I saw that there was drinking, I knew I had to get out of there. And as I was leaving, I noticed that there was a girl from my school who had been abandoned by her friends because she was so drunk that they were afraid if they stayed with her, she, they were gonna get caught. And actually they abandoned her in the snow. And dad, you always taught me that I couldn't leave my friends behind, so I stayed with her. And dad, she was so sick, I had to call 911 and I waited till the paramedics got there and dad, the reason the school knows I was at the party is because my name was in the medical report. But dad, you always taught me I couldn't leave my friends behind. <sighs> so I called the dean of students back to find out if that was the truth. And he said, yeah, that is true. He said, in fact, your daughter probably saved that girl's life that night. I said, why didn't you tell me this before? He said, oh, I didn't think it was important. <laughs> so I said, listen, we're not going to appeal this. We accept this discipline. Uh, my daughter's learned a lesson, and, um, and she'll serve this probationary period. But I want you to know something. I've never been more proud of my daughter than I am right now. Now, folks, I've got to tell you something. The way I handled that drove my daughter from me. I hurt her heart. And I lost the battle for her heart in that moment. And it was probably four or five years after that where Wanda and I had to consistently say, Lord, help us to listen before we lecture. Listen to her heart. Listen to her heart before my daughter began to soften toward us. And it's really only been in the last year or two that she's returned to church and actually softened in her relationship with the Lord. And, and so I don't share that, that story as some kind of a victory. I share that as a mistake that I made with my daughter that almost cost me her heart forever. And so we've got to learn to listen before we lecture. Who is there in your life right now that you need to listen to? And so Jesus is putting that person on your heart and on your mind. Second thing I see in this passage is this. We have to allow people to belong before they believe, or let me add this, before they behave the right ways. You see, Jesus does this crazy, crazy thing where he announces that God loves you just the way you are. And he begins to embrace people and all of their brokenness and all of their messiness. And the Pharisees are offended by it. Uh, they don't like it. They condemn him for it. They called him a drunkard and, and someone who was hanging out with sinners. And, and yet Jesus understood that the power of the gospel is this. God accepts you just as you are and then gives you the power to change who you are. He doesn't demand that you change and get your act together. And so uh, can I suggest that we need a reformation in the church in America and we need to begin to welcome the broken and the messed up, the people who are a lot like we were before we met Jesus. And we need to start to get comfortable allowing them to belong before they believe or before they behave all the right ways. When I was pastoring in Reading, one night, it was a Monday night, and we had a Bible study that met at our home and the phone rang about an hour before the, the small group was to meet. And it was a voice on the other end, and the voice was a very deep male voice. And the voice said, hello, is this Pastor Ron? And I said, yes. And the voice said, my name is Karen. 
And I almost said, my Karen, what a deep voice you have. But I, <laughs> I had a little more sensitivity than that. Um, and, and Karen proceeded to tell me that her real name was Michael, that she was a man dressing as a woman, a transgender, and wanted to know if uh, she could attend our Bible study that night. And, and folks, I gotta tell you, I was scared to death. I was really nervous. I went and I picked up this six foot four man who was dressed as a woman, and um, I didn't know what to do or how to act. It was very awkward, but when I got home, the people of God in that group met Karen, Michael. They didn't care, they just knew that this was a person who Jesus loved. And I watched as over the next six to seven weeks, that small group uh, began to love and minister to Michael, to Karen, to care for him as a person. We found out the story, we found out that uh, it wasn't a sexual thing, but Michael had been beaten and abused by every man that he'd ever known. And so as a result, began to dress like a woman just to avoid the company of men and was literally in the sex change operation program at UC Davis, was being wheeled down the hall to have the final surgery when Karen heard the Lord's voice. And this is what she heard. She heard, Karen, I am the Lord your God. This is not my will for you. Do not do this. And so she stopped him and she said, I think God's trying to find me. And so I got to go find God. And so she went to churches all over Sacramento and got thrown out of every single one. Uh, about a month or two later, she went back into the program, was being wheeled down the hall. Again, the voice of God speaks, Karen, I am the Lord your God. This is not my will for you. Do not do this. And, and so she said to us, uh, this is months now after that, she stopped them again. She said, I got to go find God in spite of the church. <laughs> and uh, she said to us, she said, I couldn't understand why if the church was so against me. Why did God call me by my female name? And then I realized God always speaks to us where we're at, not where we should be. And had he called me by any other name, I would have never heard him. Folks, can I suggest, this isn't an endorsement of any sin or broken behavior, but can I suggest that Jesus spoke to people where they were at and they heard him. And we've got to learn how to speak to people where they're at, not where they should be. Uh, to end that story, uh, Michael Trailer came to know Jesus as his savior came to my wife after about six months. It didn't happen overnight. After about six months, Michael shows up and, and says to Wanda, Wanda, will you take me shopping? I wanna buy men's clothing. And my wife said, well, you know, Michael, I'm a married woman and you're a single man. It would be inappropriate for me to take you shopping. And I think she offered that Ron would go with. And I wasn't real thrilled about that. And so I think another lady in the group went with them and they bought clothing. And the next week, Michael shows up at group with a haircut, dressed like a man for the first time ever that I'd known him. And he walks up and he had a leather coach handbag that he'd found at a secondhand store. That was the only leftover. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, how do I look? I said, Michael, you look good, but you know, the leather coach bag, you're gonna have to lose that. I don't think it's working for you. And he says, uh, well, you men have no place to keep your Bible and your notebook and your pens, and I don't know where to keep anything. And I said, well, you'll figure it out. Um, so he shows up the next week. He went back to the secondhand store and bought a hunting vest. <laughs> so he had his Bible and his notebook in the game pocket and his markers and pens in the shotgun shell holders. <laughs> and he walks up to me and he says, manly enough for you? <laughs> I said, yeah, that'll work, Michael. Now, to finish that story, 
Uh, I was at Simpson University speaking a few years ago, told that story, and a group of Simpson students came up to me. They had just met Michael Trailer. He's leading evangelistic Bible studies in inner city San Francisco among the transgender community. He got transformed, folks. But he did not get transformed because we held him at arm's length. He got transformed because we allowed him to belong before he believed or behaved the right way. Third thing I see in this passage, and then we'll finish, is this. And that is, we've got to exercise more compassion than control. Now, if you look at the Pharisees, they were all about control. They were all about appearance. They were all about the way things looked. Jesus understood that compassion is the only thing that's going to win a heart. And let me address the issue of parenting. Folks, prodigals will never return to control. They will only return to compassion. And I know there's some of you that are praying for sons and daughters. Some of you are praying for loved ones, for family members, for coworkers. I want to tell you, the control will never draw them into the presence of Jesus, only the compassionate heart of our God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the control of Christians trying to take over. And folks, it's time for us to begin to exercise more compassion than control. Let me tell you one last story, and then we'll close. When I was a kid, my dad was a pastor, and I got saved 50 times before I was five years old. Okay? I went to the altar every Sunday night, and one night, uh, my dad met me at the altar, and he said, Ron, do you have your Bible? And I pulled out my little red Bible, and I said, yep, there it is. He said, write this date down. You're saved. Don't come up here again. <laughs> it was sick of dealing with me, I guess, you know. I said, okay. Now, he regretted that later, because in my teen years, I could have used a second dip, and a third dip, and a fourth dip, you know. And uh, because I started to rebel in my teen years. I mean, I knew I belonged to God. I knew, uh, you know, I I knew I had a call in my life, but I was running like crazy and I did not look like I belonged to God. And uh, and so one night I was out drinking. I was about 16 and uh, and and I get home and I was hoping my parents were asleep and that I could sneak into the house without them knowing. And as I'm fumbling with the keys, the door swings open and there stands my father, the pastor, the, uh, the wrath of God incarnate for most of my childhood, someone I was deeply terrified of. And I tried to get by him. And as I tried to get by him, I tripped over the doorpost and fell flat in my face. And all of a sudden, I felt his arms going around me. And he picked me up. And he put his arms around me and he hugged me and he spoke these words that I have never forgotten. He said, Ron, I love you and I will always love you and nothing you will ever do will stop me from loving you. And without saying another word, he helped me into bed. And that night I laid in that bed and I cried and I cried because I knew I was gonna have to come back to a compassionate God of a loving father like that. Folks, if he had met me at the door with a sermon, it wouldn't have worked. I'd heard all the sermons. If he had met me at the door with condemnation and criticism, uh, it would have just glanced right off because I had all kinds of coping mechanisms for that, all kinds of defense mechanisms, and there was no way he was going to get through. But how do you respond to that kind of compassion? You see, he went right through and he grabbed my heart. Now listen, it was six months after that before I really recommitted my life to the Lord. You see, when you plant the seeds of grace and mercy They don't come up overnight. It stays messy for a while. But do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap. And the reality is, if we begin to exercise a ministry of compassion, more than opting for the control, 
God's gonna grab onto hearts and transform them because when we win the battle for the heart, behavior, life change will follow. Here's what I want us to do as we close. Every single one of us have people here whose hearts need to be won. Uh, you have sons and daughters and friends and loved ones and coworkers, and I know, I know we all do. And we're gonna pray for them. But before we pray for them, we need to pray for us. Because the truth is, even as I'm preaching this sermon, the Lord has been bringing people to my mind that I haven't done a great job with. And I've been saying, Lord, give me another chance. Give me another chance to, to live like Jesus lived, to listen before I lecture, to embrace them, allow them to belong before they believe or behave the right way, and to move in compassion more than control. Give me another chance. And so would you stand with me? We're gonna pray for ourselves first. And then we're gonna pray for others. Spirit of God, would you fall on your kids right now? We started this service by saying, Holy Spirit, fall. We now repeat that prayer, Holy Spirit, fall. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and wash over us. Father, please forgive us where we have uh, fought the wrong battle. We've engaged in battles that did not touch the hearts of men and women, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, we, we stand first and we say, forgive us, Lord. Thank you for showing us, Jesus, how to respond in this passage in John 8. And, Lord, we do ask, give us another chance with these people that uh, you've brought to our minds today. Would you give us another chance? Now, would you just begin to just speak out loud, and we, we're all gonna do it at once, you don't have to wait. The, the first names of people in your life whose hearts need to be won. And just begin to say them before the Lord, we're lifting them, and as you speak a name, Mark, Marty, Curtis, as you speak those names, Emily, Jesus hears them. And, and you need to know, Jesus is more concerned with winning the battle for their heart than you are. And so Lord, you hear each name, we lift them to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord, give us another chance with these names that we have whispered to you. Give us another chance to win their hearts. Lord, I, I ask that Salem Alliance would experience a wave of salvations, Lord, of hearts being won to Jesus. I pray, Father, that in the next few weeks and months that the piano wouldn't be big enough to hold the roses, that the cross wouldn't be big enough to hold the white slips, Lord, that, uh, that we'd see just a wave of people coming into the kingdom, being set free. And Lord, I thank you that it is your will to seek and to save those who are lost. And so we jump in, we say, Lord, we wanna fight that battle with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.